Hello, my name is Tony Reid. Welcome to GAY, a radio programme for LGBTI people and their friends on Coast Access Radio 104.7 FM and other access radio stations around New Zealand. I'm sure you remember that last month I was interviewing uh, Rawa Karatai and Frankie Wood Bodley, although they are now both called Karatai Wood Bodley. Um, mm-hmm. I must try to remember that. <laughs> um, and... Um, we had to rather cut short to be within our half hour, so I invited them to continue this month, and that is what they're doing. So, so welcome back, Rawa and Frankie. Thanks, Tony, for having us back. It's nice <laughs> Great to, to be back. Again. Yeah, and we are, and um, we were, we were, um, I think, discussing um, uh, discussing some of the submissions mm. that, that that you were doing. Um, um, and I think the last one we were talking about was the probably conversion therapy. Yes, I think yeah. was the last. Yes, one. I sorry. Think I think yes, it was the conversion therapy one. There's so many floating around. I yeah. got confused. It's a great time for Rainbow Ledge. By yes. now, we've we've submitted on the surrogacy law reform. We've submitted on the BDMRR bill, and we've submitted mm-hmm. on the conversion which is therapy. the which is the transgender self identification. Yeah, for those that don't understand that mm. abbreviation. Yep. Um, but, uh, so, I mean, what areas have you basically concentrated on in, in the um, uh, in the conversion therapy area? Because I I know that sort of different groups are concentrating on on, on different issues, as it were. Yeah. Because there are quite a number of different issues. So, so we've submitted on all three of them in partnership with um, yes. uh, Wood Bodley & Co., which is our parent company, right. uh, Queerly Legal, which is a legal firm that Frankie owns, and uh, with Ilga Oceania, which is a yes. LGBTI plus um, membership body yes. for the um, Australian, New Zealand and the Pacific Islands. Yes. Which Remind is, us what Ilga stands for, because it, it's... Yeah, um, so Ilga has recently changed its name at the last World Conference to just being ILGA, but the old acronym is inclusive of um, the International Lesbian Bisexual... No, sorry, International Gay um, Bisexual Transgender and Intersex Association. So it's now a brand that can stand up on its own, but is essentially for um, a a membership organisation of over 144 countries, and it's the largest and oldest membership organisation in the world. I just say it's the gay UN because it's so tedious explaining all of that crap to get to the end. Well, 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 quite a number of other organisations, like the International Music Libraries organisation, had to expand its name to include places that didn't consider themselves libraries, but they kept the old acronym. Mm. You you can't keep expanding the acronym. And librarians are particularly territorial about (laughs) definitions, as I know, having worked with the National Library on a number of um, things in a past life. So um, I've just got got our submission up, and um, so all of the submissions were technical legal submissions because we support the uh, underlying policy intention. So that was not contentious, and there's no point in boring MPs with, yes, we support you, pat on the back. So instead we focused on the nitty-gritty, as I like to say. So... Um, particularly in conversion therapy, uh, we focused a lot of energy on the definition of serious harm. Yes. Uh, in these kind of spaces, uh, and what I can say as a public law expert, is that um, sometimes a 
degree of prescription is good and sometimes it's bad. And when you're setting up a prohibitive legal framework, in this case a thou shall not do X, uh, it's very important that there's a level of specificity to enable people to go, okay, well, I'm thinking about doing this thing. Um, Is it lawful or not? So um, that's why we advocated quite strongly for a better definition of serious harm. It needs to be flexible enough for the courts to apply it in modern circumstances as, you know, society's context changes. But we felt it was a little bit vague. Um, And then we focused a lot on the definition of conversion practice. I think when we looked at the bill, what we decided was structurally it was okay, it just needed refinement in the definitions to make it work better. And one thing that we identified was that um, it's very important that conversion practice actually included any practice directed at um, changing someone's identity because of their sexual orientation, gender identity, or gender expression, or sex characteristics. So very much talking to the fact that a conversion practice has to be motivated by quite a nefarious intention. Yes. Because one thing, I I know that the the Victorian legislation um, does very much specifically include references to religion, mm-hmm. which is, as has, has meant that it had quite a difficult time getting passed because there was yes. a lot of opposition, yes. but there was also a lot of support because it made quite specific what other legislation have, has left more, more, more vague. And I think mm-hmm. some people were disappointed that the New Zealand bill didn't follow that sort of oh it's weak the, the same sort of language it's very it's very safe politically yeah. so we said that it needed to be stronger and it doesn't at all reflect the victorian legislation if you actually look at the detail all they're going is oh yes this is kind of similar so um but you, i think politically you'll probably have noticed even during marriage equality we had that religious freedom uh part of the legislation still in there. It's absolute so it's, bullshit because we live in a country where there's a separation of church and state in theory, but we all know that the missionaries came here and colonised and ripped Māori off. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, just absolutely um, like to pervert the law. So there's there continues to be a very significant influence in New Zealand law by religious sects, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. Um, we all have to live and exist uh, cohesively, but there are some who think they're above the law. Yes, and yeah. there are, and and there are quite a lot who who will try and get round the language in the um, in the current bill. Oh, we're only praying for them, you know. Yep. Uh, and well, I personally don't trust them. <laughs> I don't trust them an inch. I think mm. anyone that's had uh, any interaction with uh, conversion therapy at all will mm-hmm. know that it's more than just praying for. Oh, yeah. Yes. yeah. In fact, we've all seen, I think the three of us would have all seen some of the movies around this. It can be quite dire. But if you haven't had a chance to see any movies around conversion therapy, I do implore you to come I don't and look need at them. to. I lived it. I'm talking about others as well. Oh, yeah. No, that's fine. Yes. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. What else have we... We've, um, so conversion therapies at the top of our mind. We've got. Um, it's not really the top of my mind. Uh, birth, death, marriages. Yes, birth, death, and marriages. So I've yes. submitted a very personal submission around that, yes. uh, and mine was more to do with a, around the personal support of helping others, um, people who are trans or intersex, and also supporting Frankie go through um, 
through society and navigating society safely and what does that mean um and for me i mean it's really quite personal it's um you know part of our pregnancy story uh we've had to go get our bloods done um we've had to do some tests and within our first interaction with um the fertility associates for example uh frankie's details on the form came back as being female and you can imagine kind of the reaction that that might take for anyone to be misgendered generally anyway but in particular yes. for um for frankie what i noticed was quite a with- noticeable withdrawal um from not only uh his work that he was working on uh, not only from myself but also within himself and um actually I can only describe it as a way of um, paralysing someone, essentially, in their ability to function in the world. Uh, and it was quite noticeable. Um, I didn't know anything was up until I um, realised that Frankie wasn't in the room working with me uh, and then uh, noticed that I saw Frankie in the bedroom and was quite huddled over and um, quite withdrawn. And actually supporting anyone when they're in that kind of state, um, I won't call, quite call it fetal position, but it's pretty close to it, mm. um, is actually quite alarming, quite saddening and quite um, horrible to have to endure. And that's just as a person who's supporting another. I can, I'll can i leave Frankie to talk about his experience, but um, it's quite troubling, really. Um, and I think I talked last time we were here about my vows and how it's in there. It's got very explicit, I will protect you. Um, and this was one of those moments where it was um, time for me to call to action. Mm. Um, I picked up the phone and said, what do you think you're doing? Um, this is really troubling. Um, these forms aren't correct. You've just made um, Frankie feel like this. Um, the person on the other end of the phone didn't know what to do, didn't think that the forms were incorrect, and then um, proceeded to say, I don't know how to help, I will have to call you back. And I thought to myself, surely this is not the first time someone has um, told you that they aren't the gender of um, what you've just labelled them as. I think, though, a lot of people, because they're so exhausted by fighting for themselves every single day, just put up with it. Um, and I was having a particularly bad day that day anyway, so um, that just kind of was the nail in the coffin. Mm. Um, normally a Wednesday is my day where I write my master's dissertation, and if um, my supervisor Bill happens to be listening, I was writing today, I can promise you that. Um, but I'm also prone to distraction, so <laughs> I basically do everything that day that I can't do, get done any other day. Um, yeah. But yeah, um, the the most disappointing thing is when they went to talk to their manager, they were like, yep, you can do that. I guess you're, you're going to have to. But the forms that they sent to fix the situation was a twinked out FE on both of the forms for Frankie to get their bloods done. Yeah. And actually, it would have been easier if the forms were just left wrong because then our... Um, so we went to go and get the bloods t- taken and... Um, I pass as a cis male, which is just a burden. Yeah. Uh, anyway, but it is helpful sometimes. Um, and so I was there, and the lady was looking at me up and down, and she was like, mm, so 
I kind of just let, I just played along. I just waited to see if she'd worked out the situation, and she hadn't. By about ten minutes into the interaction, she was like looking at my beard and looking at my tattoos and looking at the form and didn't really know what to make of it. And then she tried to go to her computer to sort it out, and then I think she brought up my record and it said I was male, and then she was very thoroughly confused. So she walked past me and then grabbed the door handle and said, I just need to go and talk to my manager because... Normally we just we do these tests on women, and I was like, I was like, okay, don't talk to your manager. This is what the situation was, and she was like, oh, that makes sense. And I'm like, no, it doesn't. You have no idea what's going on here. But <laughs> she rolled with it. Um, yes, it's a pity that yeah. people. It's it's a pity that people people still. Because at least mm. in New Zealand, it's just. It, it's just sort of probably genuine ig- ignorance and can, yeah, be, I mean, can be you we don't have the 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 level of transphobia that the US or oh, even the UK have yeah i mean look a lot of the time it's well meaning people who just don't have the tools to succeed and as long as people are respectful i don't mind if they don't know the words or they don't really know how to phrase what they're trying to say i'm very lenient mm. um but I have to say, sometimes I've just had enough. But if I take us back to Rainbow Wellington days, yes. the day that you and I went to Jeff Montgomery and said, hey, we want to change the passports, how easy is that going to be? So I did that work too. I didn't lead but, it, but one of my advisors did. Yeah, and that was quite an easy request. We asked him over a yes. beer or something like that, and within a few weeks it was all done and dusted. Yes, well, I can remember people from the passport yes, office but you coming act, and giving the details. It would have been Leslie Teese, who yes, a dear yes. friend of mine. So, yes. yeah, but you act like that was a new thing. It wasn't. In 1972, Carmen Rupe came to the passport office and asked for a passport. Actually, I think she asked for female, and in those days we had Dash. The New Zealand government has a long-standing history of actually recognising trans people on documents. Mm-hmm. And this is what a lot of people don't know. And I know, obviously, because I've worked in this mm-hmm. space. And um, another thing that a lot of people don't know is that they, the self-identification clauses in the Birth, Deaths and Marriages Bill before Parliament right now are from the 80s. They were in the current Birth, Deaths and Marriages Act when Labor was in power. Jeffrey Palmer's told me personally that was the case. And um, what happened was, you know, we saw the change from a Labour government to a national government. The Burstes and Marriages Bill took seven years to pass. And National thought it was a bridge too far to have self-identification in the 90s. So we got the family court process, which in those yes. days was extremely progressive yes. anyway. Yes. But, um, yeah, I remember, so um, Sir Jeffrey absolutely changed my life, actually, Um he taught uh, me as an undergraduate student uh, advanced public law, and I wrote a paper which has since been used as the policy basis for the Human Rights Amendment Bill. Mm-hmm. Um, and I said to him, look, your constitution for New Zealand is entrenching the gender binary into the into society in New Zealand, and I'm not going to let you do it. So um, I, I looked Jeffrey in the eyes and I said, near enough's not good enough, so what are you going to do about it? And he said, Frankie, I'll change that. I think what will be interesting will be how politicians navigate international refugee status and um, recent migrant statuses under the BD. It's Uh, easy. I've already told them what to do. Yeah. They just need to listen. So it might be easy for them to do that, but it will be interesting because there does seem to be a conversation based along the questioning 
can we treat um, migrant communities as a separate uh, entity yes. and, and can we consider them as a second-class citizen? Now, we know that that shouldn't be the case. Yes, indeed. But they are toying with that conversation at the moment. And for us at ULGA, that, that's going to be yes. a major concern, especially yes. amongst our Pacific yes. brothers and sisters. And well, and that's something well, you need to talk about on Friday. So I, I was asked by Louisa Wall, you know, should we retain the family court process for refugee and migrants? And I said, absolutely not. Um, there is a perception, and I've worked with counter-terrorism. So Sahira Aden's yes. repatriation was one of my yes. projects, um, which I can talk about now because obviously she's come home. Um, but, uh, you know, we look at these things and I think there's a, there's a mainstream perception that because someone is from a country like Afghanistan or something like that, that they, they are untrustworthy. And that's not the case. They are a refugee. They've been persecuted. They are here um, because they couldn't. They had to leave their country of origin. Now, those countries tend to have unstable governments. Not always. Tend to. And so, um, the, the the primary concern which they couldn't articulate properly is how do we know that this person who's arrived at the border is the person in the documents they've got. And Immigration New Zealand are letting the entire government down on this point. And I've written to Carolyn Tremaine many a times to tell her that. Um, when a refugee arrives in this country, they're issued a certificate of identity, which is just a flimsy piece of paper that means very little. It's issued on the basis of the documents that the person comes with. Now, if they're a trans refugee or if they're intersex, um, those documents aren't going to reflect who they are. So they have to wait and have an identity in New Zealand which doesn't reflect who they are until they become a permanent resident, at which point they can come to DIA and they can get a document which does. Yes. Uh, they can get a refugee travel document in their new name and the sex that they identify with, which is, that's very powerful, but there's, there's often about a two-year wait between arriving at the border and actually becoming... Um, you know, a recognised refugee is the is the uh, terminology that's used. So that's very important. Yes, I've uh, I've, I've I've followed that, and of course I um, I've interviewed Ricardo Menendez March, who is who is very <laughs> who is very keen on all those. On, uh, so all I've those got. Uh, Aileen Rabushkin, who works for me, um, and they uh, also work for Ilga World, and they're an intersex refugee. And uh, what I was recently able to let them know is I actually worked on their citizenship case many years ago, Um, and that was quite a struggle for them. They, I think, they had to apply three times, and um, so they're very vocal in that space too. Yes, I know there's been been issues. Probably, probably good, to, good time to to bring up. You, you've you've talked about the company you you're, you've set up together. Mm-hmm. I didn't notice that on Facebook, but I didn't sort of take in a lot about it. I must admit. So, so I think about a year ago we set up um, Carrot Highwood Bodley and Co. Um, it's just been over a year. I it's think, just so. been a year yeah. on Sunday. So I set up Queerly Legal on the twenty eighth of January twenty twenty. Was my exit exit plan from DIA. I basically said to them, look, uh, unfortunately, because the Best Test Marriages Bill has gone on hold, it's extremely inconvenient for me to work for you uh, because that meant I couldn't do my academic work. I was offered to be published in journals. I wasn't allowed to be. So I, because it would have been 
embarrassing yeah, so, to the minister, which, you know, I could understand. And for a long time, the sacrifices of being a public servant made sense because I could do a lot of good. And then suddenly when the bill went on hold, that all changed. So it took me a year, uh, but I resigned in February 2020 with the hopes of going overseas on a nine-month sabbatical and coming home. And then COVID happened. But anyway, I got a husband and, and all sorts of great things instead. So, you know, the OE can wait. But So I set up Queerly Legal as a way of transitioning out of government because, you know, having done a, a lot in the identity uh, life event and also around, you know, surrogacy and adoption and all of that kind of stuff, I had a lot of expertise, which I knew was of value to the community. And I suppose a lot of people who haven't ever met me in person, if they look at my online profile, they probably think I'm a raging dickhead. Um, but uh, obviously that's not true. Um, and so uh, I thought, okay, well, you know, why do rainbow people invariably get themselves into really li- legally risky situations, particularly around sperm donation and all that kind of stuff? And it's because they're so excited to even have rights or be able to have a child or, you know, have some sort of, quote, normal life that they just don't protect themselves. And if I look at the legal community, it's pale, male and stale. There is an uprising of young females um, in about the 30 to 40 year bracket who are now being elevated to partnership, which is fabulous. But the legal community is about 15 years behind actual society. So... um, So I was thinking about that and I thought, well, okay, I'll just set up a specialist company, just a specialist firm to do advocacy around rainbow things. And um, I haven't had to do any advertising. People just come to me. They find me, they know what I'm, you know, they know my reputation and they just um, come via email or however they find me. Um, We've got a website, we've got Facebook, we've got Twitter. Um, But a lot of the people who come to us... um, are actually people I know through the community, mm. like Todd's son. Um, and they're all friends and, and people I've known yes. online at least for 10 years. So um, Queerly Legal was the first, and I worked by myself for almost two years, actually. And it wasn't until two months ago, three months ago, that um, I actually employed staff. So now I've got a team of eight. So Ooh. four policy analysts and then four advocates which is pretty cool um and then so that was sort of january february 2020 and rawa came to the launch who would have known at that point he would be my husband Mm -hmm. i knew he did not um (laughs) and then i worked for him during covid uh, he was leading the disability response and he needed someone with legal expertise to make sure everything was lawful so i did that for him um, we weren't together at the time. Now, if you talk to any of our colleagues, they thought we were, but we weren't. Mm. Uh, and it wasn't until three months after we finished working together, I call it the restraint of trade clause, um, <laughs> that we actually got together. So um, what, we'd been together a month, not even that, when we set up a company together. Mm. Yeah, not yeah. even a month. Not even a month. That was KWB. That's KWB and Co. And um, on Monday, we launched our second legal brand, which is called Access Legal. So um, Queerly Legal is everything rainbow, everything rainbow about the law and policy. And then Access Legal is more about what we call um, 
and health law priority equity communities. So it's actually geared mostly at disabled people, but also refugees, migrants, Māori and Pacifica. Um, and uh, we only employ people from those equity groups uh, or allies who have a strong personal connection. So whether that be because their whānau, one of their whānau's rainbow or disabled or something like that. So um, our point of difference in the market, uh, so to speak, and I hate using those capitalist terms, is that there's nobody else doing what we do. Yeah. And I think the other point of difference is that we've actually got lived experience of being Māori, Pacific, disabled, and being part of the rainbow community. So, yep. um, you know, my, my well, our history, our joint history and um, rainbow history is very well known. Mm-hmm. Um, our disability history is not as well known, but no, I've I'm... been quite involved uh, with the disability community probably for about five years now. Um, and that's mostly around the we, Enabling Good Lives um, uh, work that we're doing around um, trying to make sure that disabled po- people's voices are considered a partner, they're considered a right holder, that they're able to have the choice and control around um, purchasing products and services that they want rather than uh, government going in and uh, arranging all of that for them. Um, so you've got that movement um, and then I'm being Māori and also have a Pacific um, influence in the area as well. And so having that lived experience and also that intersectional, sorry, that intersectional approach to things, uh, being of an intersectional person ourselves, um, is really important to us because that lived experience is really hard to learn. So you can have learned experience, which is um, you know being a friend or a family member or a um, or knowing and researching, but actually your lived experience as being um, queer can only come by yes. being queer. Um, same with being disabled, being Māori and Pacific. Um, and Frankie also has that intersectional hat on as well. So mm. um, I'll leave you to identify yourself. But um, yeah, well, I'm I'm trans, gay, and uh, and neurodivergent. So um, you know. Uh, being autistic means that I have an unfair competitive advantage when it comes to intellect. Um, it served me well in my academic career. career. Um, but I'm actually doing my Master's of Law on a concept called supported decision-making, which in uh, everyday lay people speak is about informed consent and, and making decisions and how to make decisions. And that's for anybody, you know, rainbow or disabled or what have you, being able to control your life and give informed consent about things is extremely important. So, mm. fine. Well, I I wondered if we would be able to fill a second a second half hour program, and we have with ease. I didn't feel I had to do anything much. Uh, <laughs> So thank you very much, Rawa and Frankie. You no know, worries. Um, you, we, we, we now have two programs, which, are, and I have learnt a huge amount, and I and I'm probably better informed than many. <laughs> so isn't um, it amazing? <laughs> I, I you know I never read about our community because I'm like, well, I live it. So what's the yes. point? But I've recently realised the error of my ways uh, and have started reading about the community. Yes. yes. Well, well, I I suppose I at least have longevity having. <laughs> Having campaigned since 1973. Uh, A lot longer than we've been alive. Yeah, I was not even contemplated in 1973. Anyway, thank you very much for for agreeing to be interviewed and being so open and frank about about so many things. No worries. We could do a pregnancy special next. (laughs) Right, yeah.
Fine. Thank you very Thank much you. indeed, anyway. program is made with assistance from New Zealand on air for radio broadcast and through the accessmedia.nz website. Thank you New Zealand on air.